you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. Once again this week, we are going to be in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. Dr. Gene Twinge has written a book entitled Generation Me. Dr. William Keith Campbell has written a book, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself. I'm not going to let Kathy read that one. But their work as individuals has received recognition internationally. They've been featured on NPR and Dateline, the Today Show, Fox News. They've been in the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Time Magazine, on and on the list goes. In 2009, the two of them co-authored a book, which they entitled The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. And this is a quote from that book. Understanding the narcissism epidemic is important because its long-term consequences are destructive to society. American culture's focus on self-admiration has caused a flight from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes with performance-enhancing drugs, phony celebrities via reality TV and YouTube, a phony national economy with $11 trillion of government debt, and phony friends with a social networking explosion. This quote is from the New York Times from last September. Narcissists use Facebook as a technologically enhanced mirror, reflecting a preoccupation with one's own image, others' reactions to this image, and a desire to update the image as frequently as possible. You know this is true. But I imagine this is what's happening right now. Anytime we begin to talk about narcissism, anytime we begin to talk about a sense of entitlement, all of us our minds go to someone else, someone else who suffers from these horrible things. We believe ourselves to be not part of the epidemic. We think the gospel has inoculated us from it, and the gospel should have, but the question is, has it? It would take longer than we have here this morning for each of us to examine our own hearts and our own lives and to see how much our love for ourselves and our desire to have what we want impacts our behavior, impacts our relationships. But if this is the reality for the culture in which you and I live right now, if narcissism and entitlement are epidemic, and if the spread of this is destructive to society, then the church, you and I, we have an amazing opportunity before us. An opportunity to speak the truth into this morass into which our culture is sinking. You and I, as the church, we have an opportunity to throw out uh, the rope of this truth and pull our society out of this muddy uh, mire of, of entitlement and narcissism. We can tell them the truth with our words. And we can demonstrate with the way we live that we are created for something so much better so much bigger than being entitled, narcissistic takers 
who are completely closed in on ourselves. There's no joy found there. There's no peace found there. There's no satisfaction found there because God has created people for something quite different. The opposite, in fact. But you and I have to believe that for ourselves first. And we have to make sure that the church and you and I as individual members of the church aren't stuck in or sinking into the same entitled quagmire. We have to make sure that we as a church are not feeding the problem or creating narcissists by making people believe that all of this is about them. What they like, what they want, what they enjoy, what entertains them, it's all about you. The church existing to keep them happy and to satisfy their every need and the needs of all their children. That all this is about being served instead of serving. That the church will do whatever it needs to do. The church will build whatever it needs to build to make sure people are comfortable and to make sure everything is convenient for us. If we don't check ourselves on this, what we are communicating as a church, when we end up with people who are completely self-absorbed, who are used to being served instead of serving, who are used to being pleased instead of pleasing others, who are used to receiving instead of being the one to give, where will we find people? Where will we find the people to extend the gospel? Where will we find people to do ministry when it isn't easy or comfortable or convenient or popular? And then what will happen to our church? And if that happens to our church, what's the hope for our culture? In the passage we have before us this morning, we see the complete opposite of narcissism. We see a challenging picture of selflessness and sacrifice. And we see being lived out what God created us to be. So here's what we need to do right now. And that is to pray that the Spirit of God will take this truth and convince us that this is the way that we need to live our lives. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to stand. As we hear read together the word of the living God. This will be the third week on this passage, so I'm not going to read it in its entirety, just parts of it. I'm going to begin in verse 9. Uh, and this is Moses speaking, but first I have to find it. This is very... All right, here we go. Verse 9. Moses says, when I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, The Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people. They are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation 
stronger and more numerous than they. And now over in verse 25, Moses says, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Let's pray together. Oh, Spirit of God, we do now pray that you would take the truth of your word and give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, that by your power our hearts would be transformed by it. Father, we pray that you would turn us into people who have a heart uh, of service and sacrifice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. If you look with me again in verse fourteen, you see in that verse that the Lord makes Moses an offer. God says to Moses, "Leave me alone, that I may destroy the people below, blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they." Now, this is an unbelievable offer. Moses, I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. How tantalizingly tempting. How could Moses resist? He already knew what the people below were like. Not that amazing and really not that easy to work with. So, hmm, let me see. Keep leading a stiff-necked griping, complaining, disobedient bunch of people who are even right now worshiping and partying around this golden calf or start all over again with better people, stronger people, more numerous people. Surely that would be a step in the right direction. After all, how often do you and I hear of people who choose to take a step, a rung or two down the corporate ladder when offered a rung or two up? How many people do we hear downgrading from full professor to assistant professor? How often do we hear the pastor who goes from the strong, powerful, numerous church down to the little, tiny, small, weak, insignificant church? We're conditioned to believe that that is the wrong direction. Usually all of us seek to trade up. We trade up in cars, we trade up in careers, we trade up in the neighborhoods in which we live. But Moses turns God's offer down. What kind of character do you have to have to turn down an opportunity like this? Particularly when you consider what Moses is giving up here. You know, hundreds of centuries later, this is what people were saying. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, rejoices that God remembered the oath he swore to our father Abraham. 
Jesus said in John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Stephen, when he was preaching before the religious leaders, says, I, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Paul, in his letters, refers to Abraham, our father. I can't count the number of years and the number of youth groups and vacation Bible schools and teaching my own children the little song, you know it, Father Abraham had many sons. Y'all know that song? Many sons of Father Yeah, over and over again. I find about 83 references to Abraham in the New Testament. He is the father of Israel. There can only be one father. And no matter how great an American president may be, there's still only one George Washington. Now, that's not to say that Moses isn't famous in his own right. I find an equal number of references in the New Testament to Moses. But the point is, if Moses had accepted this offer from God, it could have all been about him. He could have taken Abraham's 83 references and added it to his own 83 references for a total of 166 references. It would all be about him. Who accepts 50% when they're offered 100%? God says, I'll wipe these people out, clean slate, start all over with a new nation who would have Father Moses. So that people would be saying, Abra, Abra who? Who could reject such an offer? A narcissist could not. An entitled person would not. What a perfect Facebook pic. You know, a selfie. A selfie of, of Moses and God shaking hands on the mountain. This new deal that they had struck with one another. Only the person who understands that life is not about them and their gain. Only the person who understands that they are not the center of everything, but rather one part of a bigger whole. One thread in the tapestry. One stroke on the canvas. Only that person could reject an offer like this. Only the person who can put others before themselves could refuse an offer like this. Here's the direction of Moses' life. It's upward to God. And it's outward to others. And it is not inward towards self. The direction of Moses' life, it's upward to God. And outward to others. And not inward towards self. Look in verse 27 at the Godward direction of his life. He says, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, Because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. Look. What's Moses interested in here? The the reputation of God. What people might believe about him. That people might believe wrong things about God. That people would think that God was not able to carry out his promises. Maybe people would think that God was limited in his strength and his power. That he could bring his people so far, but no further. That he couldn't muster enough strength to finish what he started. But Moses knows that's not true about God. He'd experienced too much with God. He had seen too many miracles of God to believe that. And he didn't want anyone else to believe the wrong things about the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God. And so Moses sought to protect it and to defend it. Secondly, he didn't want people to misunderstand the love of God. 
If God destroyed these people, the nations around them, particularly the nation of Egypt, might believe that the one and only true and living God was hard and mean and unappeasable and capricious, just like their gods were. He might love you one minute and hate you the next. He might promise to bless you in one breath and destroy you the next. But Moses knew other than that to be true about God. He knew the love and compassion of God. And he did not want anyone else to doubt that love or that compassion. And so he sought to defend it and protect it. Moses knew the faithfulness of God. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Moses knew he had experienced that every perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God remembers and keeps his covenant. He's faithful. And so Moses seeks to defend and protect the faithfulness of God. Moses' focus is upward to God, his glory, his reputation. His focus is also outward, or in this case, downward, to the people below. Moses had about him the the Spirit of God, like the Spirit that Jesus described to James and John. Those two sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village that would not welcome Jesus. But Jesus said to them, you do not know the kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And in some way, Moses has come to see these people for who they are, not for who they are but for who God has declared them to be. Oh, that you and I as evangelical Christians could do the same. Somehow Moses knew that in spite of their faithless, prodigal, profligate behavior, they were not beyond the reach of God. Oh, that you and I as evangelical believers in Christ would believe the same Somehow Moses knew they were not beyond the reach of God, not beyond being redeemed by him. Moses is able to see past their horrendous sin, sin that angers him too, and know that these people are God's own people. Look in verse 26. Moses says to God, they are your people, your own inheritance. They are your redeemed. Again in verse 29, they are your people, your inheritance. See, a narcissistic person would look at these people. And he would look at all the grief that these people had caused them. What a pain in the neck these people would be. And how much easier his life would be if these people would go away. And would accept God's offer, but not Moses. What if it is that Moses didn't want to dis- these people destroyed until they had experienced the glory of God as he had experienced it? This is why Moses' life stands as a challenge. It's a challenge to our narcissistic age. It's a challenge to narcissistic worshipers who fill the pews with their demands to be the center. His life stands as a challenge to narcissistic people who don't want their lives to be inconvenienced by difficult people, not very lovable people. The very people who must be reached with the gospel. 
and whose lives must be transformed by it. Moses and his decision should challenge your life and mine. What are we thinking? How are we living? But we have to be careful here. Very, very careful not to make this a bless his heart moment for Moses. Well, bless his heart, Moses. Lord, the sacrifice he made, bless his heart. That's not what this is about. Where does this upward and outward focus come from? It isn't because Moses dug and dug within himself and deeper and deeper. He, he shoveled, digging deeper and deeper until finally his shovel hit on something. Oh, there it is. I found it. Eureka. I found within myself, deep within myself, the spirit of sacrifice. That's not where it comes from. It's not where it's going to come from in you and me either. Forty days and forty nights fasting in the presence of God. Glowing with the glory of God. Moses did what he was compelled to do from such an experience. Experience the glory of God and the presence of God and extending the glory of God in the world. That makes any sacrifice pale in comparison. What's my own nation? What's more comfort? What's a little more convenience for me in comparison to experiencing and extending the glory of God on this earth. This is the work of God in Moses. It's the work of God in Moses as Moses committed himself to time with the Lord. As Moses committed himself to being in the presence of the Lord. And we know this is what the Lord wants from us. Because in Moses, God is preparing us for Christ. So that when Christ comes to earth... His work will already be recognizable to us because it's the work that God began in the Old Testament. Christ just comes to finish it, to do it perfectly, to complete it so that on the cross, He can say, it is finished, done, perfectly. Nothing else needs to be done. And so we look at the life of Christ and we see that after He's baptized by His cousin John in the Jordan River, And before he goes to begin his public ministry, he's taken to uh, the desert. He's alone in the desert, just as Moses was alone on the mountain. And like Moses, Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. You know this story. And in the desert, during those 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is preparing himself for his work as mediator, just as Moses prepared himself on the mountain to be the mediator between God and his people. And while in the desert, Jesus was also made an offer. Satan, in his third temptation of Jesus, at the end of the 40-day period, took Jesus to a high mountain. And scripture says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And Satan said, all this I will give you if you will bow down And worship me. This is not an empty offer. Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the desert to be tempted of Satan. This is all part of the plan for the Lord Jesus. And the word tempted means to entice to improper behavior. It means to endeavor to discover the nature or character of someone 
by testing it or putting it to the test. And so temptation always strikes at the character of a person. Strikes at your character and mine as well. Who are they? What are they made of? What is really important to that person? A narcissistic character responds in one way. A non-narcissistic character responds in another. And so this temptation is real. It isn't contrived in some way that we don't completely understand. Jesus knew that Satan had the ability to make good on this promise, or it could not be categorized as a real temptation. It was an offer to test the character of Jesus. Satan hoped that Jesus would think his offer was superior to the life that Jesus had already lived and to the life that still faced him. I do not know if Satan knew about the cross. Maybe you know that, Dr. Krabendam. I don't know if Satan knew about the cross. If Satan did know of the plan of the cross, then he was trying to get Jesus to short-circuit that plan and that process to offer him the glory now and the worship that the Father had already promised to him. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even if Satan didn't know of the cross, even if this were just a blind temptation, a shot in the dark, based on Satan's knowledge of the narcissism that lurks in all of our hearts, the narcissism that he feeds and fertilizes, The offer had to be appealing to Jesus because Jesus knew about the cross. Here's an offer for all the glory with none of the suffering. The crown without the cross. That deal would be difficult to pass up. It had to sound a whole lot better than dying on a cross for people like you and me. And so Jesus' choice here was not an easy one. It never is. Humanly speaking. But what was Jesus' response? You know it. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. That's His response. And again, we can't assume that it was an easy one for Jesus to make. Hebrews 5.18 says that Jesus Himself suffered when He was tempted. Read it yourself. Hebrews 5.18. Jesus suffered when He was tempted. And since we know that Scripture tells us the truth, we know that Jesus suffered in this temptation. What was the cause of the suffering? The self-denial of it? How easy it would be to serve himself instead of other people, to think of himself first, wanting an easier way? I don't know. But in any case, the temptation caused suffering. Jesus said in Luke 10, 50, 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. The very end of his life, the last night of it, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, make this cup be taken from me. And so the temptation to another plan must have been appealing to Jesus. How much easier to simply bow a knee in comparison to hanging on a cross. So the temptation struck at his character. But Jesus chose the honor and the glory of his Father over himself. Upward direction. Jesus chose the redemption of people, the saving of their lives, your life and my life, over the keeping of his own. 
John Calvin writes, there are two reasons why Christ withdrew into the wilderness. First, that after a fast of 40 days, he might come forth as a new man, or rather a heavenly one, to the discharge of his office. Secondly, that he might be tried by temptation and undergo an apprenticeship before he undertook an office so arduous and so exalted. And so we have to ask where we see narcissism in our own lives, where we see narcissism in our churches, where we see self-indulgent entitlement. Is this what Jesus died to make us? Is this what he suffered temptation to obtain for us, a self-centered life? Did Jesus model for you and for me the exact opposite of what he wants us to be? What does scripture tell us? 2 Corinthians 5.15 Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. There's both directions, upward to God and outward to people. No longer viewing people from a worldly point of view. Moses saw more than just worthless sinners dancing and partying around that golden calf. And so he prayed for them. He interceded for them. Jesus saw more. The worthless sinners, and so he died for them. What do you see when you look at other people? What is your perspective of them? What are you willing to do for them? Paul learned this as well from his Savior that he loves so much in Philippians chapter 2. He says that he's being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of their faith, and he rejoices in it. Paul's life poured out as an offering for others. And so as we look at the whole counsel of Scripture, Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus in his life in the Gospel, the Apostle Paul in the Epistles, I I don't see a place for narcissistic entitlement. Not in our lives and not in our churches. I see instead... A call to move in an upward direction, to glorify God with our lives. To make our words and to make our lives living defenses, living demonstrations uh, of the grace and the mercy and the compassion of the Lord and His omnipotent power to transform. I see a call to an outward direction of our lives. Living our lives for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't come at no cost. There was a cost for Moses. Giving up what he could have had. That was nothing in comparison to Jesus. Giving up what he already had in eternity. Spent in the presence of his Father in heaven. The kingdom of light and riches. He had that. He had perfect 100% divinity to which he added 100% human body. And he came to earth. And with that body, he suffered, suffered great temptation. And then he gave that body up to the agony and the suffering of the cross 
because he saw the overwhelming need, he sacrificed himself to do something about it. So that people like us, like you and me, can in faith believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You and I aren't Jesus. We are his ambassadors. Scripture says so. You and I, we, we're the ones that he sends out. He sends out into the world with the saving, healing, good news words of the gospel. Shouldn't it cost you something? Shouldn't it cost me something to live our lives for the glory of Christ and for the sake of other people? Should it cost us something? What do you think? You think yes? What's that cost in your life? See, we have to throw out the rope, the rope of this truth to our culture, to our churches. Because self-centered entitlement is destroying both of them. And so for the sake of the gospel, we have to have people who are committed to honoring Christ with our lives. People who are willing to sacrifice what we could have for the sake of others and their ability to know this abundant life that Christ offers to them. We just have to make sure that that rope doesn't look strange in our hands to others. What? You? Talking to me about self-indulgence? So we have to examine our lives and ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts and to ask Him to make us less about ourselves and more about Him and others. Let's pray. Father, it's part of that sinful human nature with which each of us is born. To be concerned with ourselves. And it's not that difficult and not that far of a jump, Lord, to be obsessed with ourselves. What we like, what we want, what we think we need, and going after those things. And so truly, Lord, truly, we acknowledge before you that if we will be people who have that upward focus in our lives, that outward focus, it's going to have to be a work of your Spirit. A battle that your Spirit does within each of us to put to death ourselves so that we can live for Christ. So I pray, Spirit of God, that you would reveal to each of us more and more your glory. Lord, if we could see your glory more and more, if we could just be in your presence and spend time with you and and know you and who you are like and experience that glory for ourselves, we would want that for other people. So I pray that you would help us be people who, who make that commitment to know you, to spend time in your presence, to be overwhelmed with your beauty and your glory and your splendor. And from the overflow of that, Lord, we will want to tell others 
about you. The good news of the gospel, how they can experience that glory for themselves and their lives. So I pray, Lord, again, that this would be a work of your spirit. Turning us not into takers and receivers, but to givers. That we would offer ourselves, take our lives, Lord, and use them for your glory. For the sake of others, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.